You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right. You guys are exceptionally quiet this evening. Cool. Uh, Go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Uh, we're, we're taking a look at some of what the Apostle Paul teaches us in Ephesians about forgiveness and love. Um, I know not everyone was here last week, uh, but if you were here last week, you know what, uh, that Pastor Stephen and I decided that it would be wise for us to take a quick break from our study of the Gospel of Mark. Um, we actually decided to go ahead and extend that break uh, till the first week of September, uh, but we decided to do this so that we could have a few sermons addressing some of the needs of our church. And as I said last week, we, we know some of the problems going on in this congregation. Uh, so I'm going to say a lot of, of what I said uh, in the beginning last week. Uh, we know that there are marriages in this church that are in a really bad place right now. Uh, we know that there are people who have strife in their families that they live with and in their extended families outside of their home. We even know that there are some small conflicts between members. Uh, so, so it is uh, particularly fitting that we would study some passages that deal with forgiving one another and loving one another. Um, as your pastors, Stephen and I want to see you guys thriving in your walk with the Lord Jesus. Um, we we want to we see loving marriages and godly households. We want to see God's people forgiving others when they repent. Uh, what we don't want to see is you all walking in bitterness and resentment toward, toward people whether it be your spouse, your parents, your children, uh, your fellow members, your coworkers, whatever it might be. Rather, we want to see you all walking in love, particularly the kind of love that the Lord Jesus Christ has shown to us. So that's what our text talks about this evening. And like I said last week, the two reasons I think that, that our relationships often deteriorate are lack of forgiveness and lack of love. Again, this is all you heard all this last week, but if we... If everyone really loved one another as God in Christ has loved us, then we would literally never sin against each other, would we? We sin because we don't love one another. That's why Jesus sums up commandments 5 through 10 that we just all recited with, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. We sin against each other because we don't love each other. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week in Ephesians. And... In these two verses, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul is going to exhort us to imitate our Father and God by imitating the love of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So my prayer has been this week that God would use this sermon to show us how to love. That, that we would be so awestruck by the love of God shown to us that we would then be left with no choice but to imitate the one who has loved us supremely. So with that said, let's go ahead and read the text. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our God, who is love, we come before you this evening recognizing 
that many of us have been hard-hearted towards others. And we ask that you, by sovereign grace, would break our stony hearts to pieces and teach us how to love. God, may we be so captivated by the love and mercy that you've shown us that we can't help but to be like you. Show us, please, show us the beauty of the gospel. Show us the love of our Savior and open our hearts to receive the scripture that was just read. We ask for this all in Jesus' name, and not for our sake, but for his sake. God, please hear us and answer our prayer. Amen. All right, so our text begins this evening with Paul saying, Therefore, be imitators of God. Therefore, right? Anytime we see that word, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the therefore, therefore? Right, Mr. Rogers does theology. It's my favorite phrase. What is the therefore, therefore? Uh, Because the word therefore links what came before it to what's going to come after the word, right? So a little bit of basic grammar kind of helps us read our Bibles sometimes. Uh, God decided to communicate his truth through sentences and paragraphs and stuff, so it's good that we know a bit of grammar. Uh, but we've, So in order to understand why the therefore is there, we need to look at verses 31 and 32. So we're going to do some quick recap for last week. Uh, and I recommend if you weren't here last week to check out our podcast Uh, and and listen to that sermon, or if you have no access to that, please talk to me. I believe I I can send you the notes, or I can preach the sermon to you privately. Um, But anyway, verses 31 and 32 of chapter 4. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So in a nutshell, in verses 31 and 32, Paul tells us that we are to put away all forms of hatred, all malice, all forms of hatred. Whether it be internal emotions like bitterness, abusive language, right, like clamor, smaller fights, that's your wrath, shouting matches, physical actions, whatever it may be, put all malice away from you, all forms of hatred. All that is to be put away, put off if you're one of the people of God. And instead of living in bitterness and hatred towards others, particularly those who have done us wrong, because why else would you be bitter towards someone? Why else would you have anger and wrath towards someone unless they had offended you? So instead of being that way to others, we are to instead be kind to one another, which we saw last week means to do good for each other, to actually actively strive to do good for one another. And we're to be tender-hearted. We're to be quick to compassion, quick to pity another person, quick to be merciful to them, even though that they have done us wrong. And lastly, we are to forgive one another, which means to absorb the debt that the offender owes us for the wrongdoing. And I want to be clear, again, I talked about this at length last week, this does not mean that we brush the offense under the rug, right? The wrong that was done still needs dealt with. Like I said, you married folks, there may need to be counseling. There definitely needs to be hard conversations where you point out, you did this and this was not okay, but I'm going to forgive you, but we still need to address what happened, right? Forgiving someone is not brushing it under the rug, but forgiving someone is deciding to not hold the offense against the offender once they come to you desiring forgiveness. To put it away, we forgive. And why are we to be kind tenderhearted, and forgiving towards one another? Paul says in verse 32, as God in Christ forgave us. Specifically because 
God in Christ forgave us. Because he is kind and tenderhearted and forgiving towards us. So Paul's thinking is, since we've been recipients of the forgiveness and kindness of God, it is only fitting that we would then show that to others, even and especially those who have wronged us. If we feel like someone doesn't deserve forgiveness, we're to remember that we did not deserve the forgiveness of God. But God gave it to us anyway, through Christ. We repented, and he forgave us through Christ. Whenever we say that that we didn't deserve for the person to wrong us, we remember that we deserved nothing but the unyielding wrath of God and that he did not deserve us to sin against him. But God, being rich in mercy with the great love with which he loved us through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, forgave all of our sins and made us right with himself. God loved us and forgave us. Us. Those who were his enemies. He loved us, as Paul says in Romans 5, while we were yet sinners. He forgave us when we turned to him in faith. We cannot forget this. We can't forget this. This is one of the biggest doctrines of our entire faith. Here it is. God forgives sinners. He forgives sinners. He puts their sins away. Metaphorically speaking, the Bible says God forgets your sins. God's omniscient. He knows everything. He doesn't actually forget anything. But so to speak, he does not remember the sins against you any longer. He forgives sinners. And his forgiveness toward us is to be the fuel that then motivates us to forgive others who have done us wrong. And this extends into all of our relationships, whether they be parental, marital, between church members, our friendships, our co-workers, all of it. The kind of forgiveness we have received then extends itself out into those areas. God forgave us. Again, Write that down. God forgave us. We had sinned against him, the only one who deserves all of our loyalty and affection. We deserved his righteous wrath, and yet in love, through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, he no longer holds our sins against us if we turn to him in faith. He showed us mercy and forgave us, and that's why we forgive those who do wrong to us. That's Paul's big point in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. So Paul goes on to say in chapter 5, verse 1, which should be part of chapter 4, right? Just the chapter divisions and the verses, that is not inspired. That is not part of the actual Bible. That's just a reference for us. And it's a really bad place to ever put that in there in the 1500s. a really dumb place to put it. But in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul goes on to say, Therefore, be imitators of God. So since you have been forgiven... Since God has shown you such mercy, since he's forgiven you for your innumerable sins, since he continues to forgive you each day when you repent, since he has been so abundantly kind to you, since he's made you right with himself, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. So our being forgiven, as we've already seen, is to be a huge motivation for us to imitate God. For us to mimitai, right, is the actual word to mimic is to imitate him, to act like God. But before we get into what it means to imitate God, because we're going to get there, right? Or, or, or how Paul expects us to imitate God, I want us to look at the other reason Paul gives us for imitating God. There's another reason right there in verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. As beloved children, imitate God. As his children. 
So since we are his children, we are to behave like him. But not just children. Again, I want, I want to highlight this as beloved children. Beloved children. Paul expects this phrase, as beloved children, to be a huge motivation for us. Right? Knowing that we are beloved by God is meant to further encourage us to imitate him. And if you don't know what beloved children means, it means dearly loved children. Little ones who are dear to God. I think what Paul wants us to do is really meditate on those words. He wants us to chew on what exactly it means that we are the beloved of God. Right? So how are we the dearly loved children of God? Well, we haven't been going through Ephesians But Paul's been building his case, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Let me tell you what God has done for you. And then in chapter 4, he then starts to appeal to us to live in accord with what God has done for us. Right? So, how are we dearly loved children of God? I want us to think on how God has loved us. And all these points that I'm going to make are actually things that you can find in Ephesians 1 through 3. So I want you guys to go back. I don't have time to give an exposition of all those texts this evening. Read Ephesians. It'll take you like 20 minutes. It's one of the best books in the New Testament. And that might sound kind of bad for me to say that some books are better in the New Testament than others. But whatever. I don't know what to tell you. It's one of the best books in the New Testament. But let's think on how God has loved us. And, and I want to be clear before I go further. I'm speaking to believers right now. I'm speaking to believers. To Christians only. I cannot say the following things about an unbeliever. But I will say this, if we have unbelievers here with us, if you will turn to Jesus, believing that he is Lord, that he's king, that he is God, and that he has died for your sins, meaning died in your place for your sins, and was raised from the dead, if you believe that he can and will forgive you of your sins and save you from your sins and the penalty of hell that you deserve for your sins, then this is for you. This is for you then. Let me put it forward. Maybe I've never stressed this enough in my preaching and I apologize. God desires you to repent. God desires you to repent and believe on Christ and be saved. He desires it. So please repent and turn to Christ so that these things might be said of you as well. But let's think on how God has loved us for a while, right? These are all things you know, I hope, if you've been here, especially if you're a member here. This should be old hat for you. Let's hear it again. It's good for us to rehearse our salvation, is it not? Remember being one of the number one commandments throughout the Bible. Remember, because we're slow to remember because we're stupid, right? So let's rehearse what happened. How has God loved us? For starters, Christian, do you realize that you were chosen by God? I know half of us, over half of us in here are Calvinists. You're like, of course, let's go ahead and check that off the box, right? I listen to Ligonier in the mornings, right? Of course, we know God chose us, but have you really ever dwelled on that, Christian? He chose you, individually, you. He chose you, personally. What a thought that he called you by your name before the foundation of the world was laid. Does this not make you want to weep with joy and gratitude? He chose you, personally. Read Ephesians 1. He predestined you for adoption as his child through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Like, really think about it. From the mass of fallen humanity, God chose you. And he didn't choose you because you were so great. That's blasphemy. There's nothing good in us. He didn't choose you because you're great. He didn't choose you because of anything that he foresaw in you. He didn't choose you because he thought you'd be useful to him. Nothing like that. He chose you. Why? Because he desired to have you. You're sitting there going, why? Paul says, to the praise of his glorious grace, he chose you. He desired to have you not because you're desirable, but out of the goodness and kind nature of God, he chose you. And he set his mark upon you and declared, this one is mine. This one belongs to me. I will have this one. I will save this one. This one is to become my child through faith in my son. And he didn't have to choose you. Many are called, but few are chosen, is what the word tells us. He didn't have to choose you, but he loved you. And he pitied you. And he had mercy on you. And he chose you to become one of his children. If I could illustrate this, this is like a parent going into an orphanage to adopt a child. That child has nothing to offer the adopting parents, does it? Nothing. That child has nothing to add to them. They, they are doing just fine without that kid. They're getting along in their life. They, that kid doesn't add anything to them. The adopting parent does not need that child. But that parent chooses to love that child and make it their own. And you might ask that parent, why did you choose that child? Because I love her. Why did you choose that child? Because I love him. Why? No other reason. I love them. I love that child. Your election, your being chosen by God is proof that you are his dearly beloved child, Christian. But not only did God choose you, but God sent his son to live for you and die in your place for your sins. Again, you know that. Check that off the list. Of course, God sent his only son, right? We know John 3.16, right? We know that. But I don't think we think about that rightly sometimes. He gave his only begotten son. We don't th even think about what that means. It's monogenes. His only one. The unique one. That he loved with a love that cannot be comprehended by human beings. The unique son of God. He gave up that one. For you. For you. To come and be born under the covenant of works and accomplish it in your place, rendering perfect obedience to God that you can't. And he gave up that son to die in your place, a sinner. To suffer the wrath of Almighty God for your sins, not his. He had none. He sent his son that the Lord Jesus might willingly take your sins upon himself and make atonement through his cross to accomplish the forgiveness of your sins. The fact that God would give his only son for you, that God the son would come and willingly lay down his life for yours is proof that you are his dearly loved child, his beloved child. And then what happened? We're not done. What happened? Over the course of your life, God allowed you to hear the gospel. If you're hearing you're not a Christian, you're hearing it now. What a great kindness towards you. 
But Christian, God allowed you to hear the message of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Think about that for a second. We take that as a given because we live in a fairly Christianized nation. But many never hear the gospel. And they perish. They go to hell. It doesn't matter that they've not heard the gospel. They're still guilty of their sins whether or not they ever hear the name of Jesus. Read Romans 10. But God allowed you to hear the gospel. He allowed you to hear the external call of the message of salvation. He allowed you to hear the call to come to Christ and be saved. What great love God must have for you that he would give you the privilege to hear his truth. Not only did you hear the external call, but then God drew you internally to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, none can come to me unless they're drawn by my Father. You did not on your own choose to come to Jesus. You were drawn internally. He irresistibly drew you to Jesus. He, the Bible word is, he regenerated you. He gave you spiritual life where all you were was dead. He took your sinful heart of stone that was resistant to God and gave you a heart of flesh. He made you alive to the truth and gave you ears to hear the gospel. He even gave you the gift of faith. Read Ephesians 2. He gave you the gift of faith so you could savingly believe on Christ. As Paul says again in Ephesians 2, God made you who was dead in your sin and in your trespasses. He made you alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God did for you what you could not do for yourself. He gave you spiritual life while you were dead in your sins and brought you to his son in faith. And you believed, Christian, willingly. He made you willing and able to believe. You trusted Christ to save you. You threw yourself on the mercy of God found in Jesus. And in that moment that you threw yourself upon the mercy of God found in Jesus alone, God instantaneously, once and for all time, declared you righteous. He justified you. That's the Bible word there. He justified you. He declared you righteous. Though you are a sinner, God took away your sins and covered you with Christ's perfect obedience and his perfect righteousness. He forgave you. And he gave you a righteousness that doesn't belong to you, but comes from another. Namely, the Lord Jesus Christ. He united you to Jesus. And now what is said of Jesus is said of you. And here's what it is. Righteous. Though you yourself are not righteous, you've been clothed as it is with the clean robes of another person, Jesus. Now God looks at you and says, righteous with me. And in doing all of that, for you, individually, every one of you who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ has repented and trusted in him, all of you individually, in doing all of this, Paul tells us that God has adopted you into his family. He turned you from a child of wrath, Ephesians 2, a child of wrath into a child of God, one of his beloved children. God is now your father. Paul tells us in Galatians, you now cry out, Abba, Father. Closeness with him. God hears you when you cry out to him. When you call upon him, he hears you. He pities you. What a blessing to consider that the almighty God of the universe looks upon you and has pity on you. He pities you, he comforts you, he cares for you. He promises to see you through all the trials and troubles of this life. He promises to bring you home to his side. He promises that you, his dearly beloved 
child whom he has adopted into his family by the blood of his own son will be with him forever. Paul says in chapter 4, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. You are truly God's beloved child, Christian. Looking at all of this, how he chose you, sent his son for you, let you hear the external call, how he drew you inwardly and gave you the gift of faith, how he regenerated you, how he justified you, how he sealed you with his spirit, how he has adopted you into his family through Christ. Looking at all of that, there is literally no denying that you are his beloved child. Look at all the Lord has done for you. Do you rehearse this to yourself ever? Look at all the Lord has done for you. Not counting the temporal, earthly blessings he gives you. Your home, your family, your car, the clothes you're wearing. No one in here is naked, right? The clothes you're wearing, the food you ate before you got here. You wake up to running water. Come on, man, we live in America. Look at all the Lord has done for you. Perish the thought that you are not his dearly loved adopted child. But maybe you're thinking adopted and beloved don't seem to fit together very well, right? Maybe you're thinking that. Maybe you have a low view of your adoption. Well, hear me out. The scriptures say that God put you into his family. You used to not be, so you are indeed literally adopted. That's the language Paul uses in Ephesians 1. But in calling you beloved children, Paul is actually using the same language for you that he uses of how the Father thinks about Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul calls Jesus the beloved, the beloved of God. So Christian, what is said about Jesus is said about you. God loves you like you are not a child of God, but as if you were the child of God, the son. He loves you like that. He claims you as his child. He claims you with just as much ferocity and passion as he claims Jesus. That's how loved you are by him. Dearly loved by him. Beloved children, though you are a sinner, God loves you. This is good news. Really think about this. Just that little verse, verse 1. As beloved children, behold the love of God given to you. So Christian, I know it sounds like I'm beating a dead horse. I keep using that phrase, beloved child of God. It's on purpose. This is your absolute identity now. This is an objective fact. This is what you are. A beloved child of God. Regardless of how you might feel. Because we all know that there are days where you kind of don't feel like God really loves you. Or you really don't want to own that identity. I don't really feel like a beloved child of God. Well, to quote Ben Shapiro, facts don't care about your feelings. These are the facts. This is objectively what you are. A beloved child of God. And I love how Paul does not say, this is what you will be if you try really hard. No, the apostle says, this is what you are now. Right now. Currently. This is what you are already. By God's grace, this is what he has made you into. A dearly beloved child of God. You aren't this on your own. You're not this on your own. I want to get that clear. You are not worthy, right? Get the Facebook theology out of here, right? On your own, you are a child of wrath. You are his beloved child only by his grace given to you through Christ alone. But nevertheless, that is what you are. A beloved child of God. 
part of his family. But, but how is this new identity that we have as God's children supposed to motivate us to forgive people and love people? How? Well, I think there's a couple of ways we can understand this. Paul wants us to, to meditate on this truth and, and let our understanding of our identity flow into imitating God. I think that's what he wants us to do here. So I think there's a couple of ways we can understand, uh, maybe on a deeper level, what Paul's getting at. I think Paul could mean for us to see this. So again, the question is, how does knowing my identity make me want to imitate God? Well, we imitate what we love, don't we? We imitate what we love. We want to be just like the things that we love the most. We want to mimic, imitate the things or the people that grab our heart's affections. Whatever you are captivated by is what you are going to mimic. Let me give you an illustration of this, a personal one. When I was 13, I got turned on to heavy music. Right, me and Janet talked about this at a gamer night a couple weeks ago. I love heavy music. I love Jesus more, but heavy music is awesome. Right? But I really got into it, and I, I really got into a few bands in particular, and I loved those bands. I loved the musicianship, right? the vocalists, the drummers. I wanted to know everything about them. I wanted to know the, the whole discography, Every, every song they ever made, all the lyrics. I wanted to know about the band members' personal lives. Right? I, I wanted to dress like them. I wanted to talk like them. I wanted to be able to play like them. I wanted to adopt their ideologies. Right? I, I, I grew out my hair, right? And it's real curly, so it grew out, not down. It was amazing. Um, I started wearing black all the time, which still is a thing. Uh, there were band shirts everywhere. I did not own a normal piece of clothing. God bless you, Mom. Family pictures, nightmare. Um, right? the, the men in those bands grabbed my heart, and I was awestruck by them. They were amazing in my mind. So what happened? I imitated them as closely as I possibly could because I wanted to be just like them. They had grabbed the affections of my heart, so I imitated them in everything right down to the godless behavior that I was caught up in before God saved me. I wanted to be just like them. I think in the same way, Paul wants us to see and behold the love that God has for us. The fact that he has forgiven us and made us his children. And Paul expects us to be so awestruck that we are the beloved children of God and have the affections of our hearts so pulled towards God as we meditate on our identity now that we then come to a place where we are compelled to imitate him in every single way we possibly can. I think that might be what Paul's getting at here. You imitate what you love. And really, whenever you consider all the ways with which, or that, that the Lord has loved you, when you really think about that, how can your heart not soar with affection towards him? When you consider the great lengths he went through to save you, how can you not love him supremely? When you consider that every blessing, spiritual and earthly, that you have comes from his hand, how can you not be awestruck by grace? If you're not, I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but I'm saying at least on today, these truths have not yet pierced into your heart. You can be an armchair theologian till you die and check off all the boxes. I agree with that whole scheme of salvation and it not penetrate your heart. Or at least sometimes it doesn't penetrate your heart. When we think on the great love that God has shown us, we ought to be moved to love him back with a ferocious passion. 
And when that happens, our imitation will necessarily follow because we imitate the things that we love the most. But Paul also could have meant something much more simple. It's a little bit more of a punch. When we consider all that God has done for us in making us his children, it is only fitting as a response of gratitude that we would imitate him. Like, think about this for a moment. Like, really, who else would you rather imitate? Who else would you rather imitate? Are you, as a Christian, going to be so loved by God and then turn around and say, I don't want to be anything like him? I would, I, I'd rather be like the world, please. It doesn't make any sense. That's ludicrous. Right, that absolutely doesn't make any sense, especially whenever you consider how dear you are to him and how dear he is to you for all that he's done. So Paul could mean that our imitation of God will flow naturally from our understanding of what he has made us into because nothing else really makes sense at this point. Like I said, really, who, are you going to receive all this love and then say, no, thank you, Lord, I don't want to be anything like you? That doesn't make any sense. Now, how are we to be imitators of God? How? Are we going to imitate him? This can be applied really broadly. There, there are some sermons, Charles Spurgeon has a really good one, that's just on Ephesians 5.1, right? And it's real broad. We can imitate God in his holiness, in his hatred for sin, in his mercy, in his goodness, in his justice, right? There's a lot of different ways that we can imitate God. So this is a blanket statement. In whatever ways we as humans can imitate him, imitate him. Be imitators of God as beloved children. But I think, giving its con given its context, connecting itself to verse 32 in chapter 4 and verse 2 in chapter 5, I think Paul has two things primarily in mind that we're supposed to imitate God in. Forgiving people and loving people. Those are the two things Paul has in mind. Like I said earlier, we're, we're to be quick to forgive as our God has forgiven us. We are to, as it were, jump at the opportunity to reconcile with those who have offended us if they will only express a desire for a renewed relationship. Is that not what God does when he forgives? I'm not saying there's any passions in God or anything like that, but it's as if he jumps to forgive us. He is so ready and willing and happy to forgive us. We are to freely and fully forgive, not holding old wrongs done against the offender once there's been confession of sin and repentance, just like God does to us. Never brings it up again. We're to gladly offer forgiveness to others as God is happy to forgive sinners and bring them into his family. Like I said last week, how could we not be willing and ready to forgive when God has so fully and freely forgiven us and made us into his children? It's just not consistent. We've been, we've been forgiven much and we've been brought into his family. We have the family name. And now we bear the family likeness as we forgive as our heavenly father forgives but we talked about forgiveness a lot last week. So for the rest of the sermon, I want to highlight love. And Paul gives us a specific example in verse 2 of the kind of love that he expects us to show as God's children. Verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. First, Paul says that we are to walk in love. Walk. Now, to walk means to do something constantly. That this walk is to be the main theme 
of our lives. I want to stress this to you. This is not an occasional showing of love to other people. Rather, if you want to use that walk analogy and extend it, this, this is the path that we're traveling on. A journey of love, so to speak, though that makes me sound like a hippie, right? Constant love is to be the theme of our lives. There, now, there may and there will be sin as we try to stay on this path. There will be times where we don't imitate God well, or maybe even at all. But there will be repentance for the child of God. You're in his family. You're going to repent. He's made us into his children, and his kids repent and continue to imitate him. But we walk in love. And Paul's example of the love that we're to walk in daily is the love of Christ who gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, I want to make a bit of a theological note here. Paul says that imitating the love of God looks like imitating the Lord Jesus. Why? I want to rip off Hebrews for a little bit. Jesus, in Colossians, Jesus, who is the visible image of the invisible God. Jesus, who is the exact imprint of the nature of God. Imitating God the Father looks like imitating the Son of God who has the exact same nature as the Father. Not the same person, but they share the same nature. Like Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we imitate our Lord who teaches us what God is like. If you imitate Jesus, you're naturally, necessarily imitating God the Father. And Paul cites Jesus' supreme example of of his loving sacrifice on the cross as our example for love. So what I want to do is I I just want to point out a few simple things that we learn from the example of the Lord Jesus. And hear me, these are things that you already know. I'm not mad, I know I might sound like I'm getting excited. These are things that you already know. But it's quite easy to see that many of you are not walking in this right now. I'm not pointing the finger at you. I've, I've done it. God grants us repentance. We come back. We strive. We fail. We repent. We keep going. That's the, that's the Christian walk, right? We fall. We get back up. We keep following Jesus. We fall. But regardless, this is easy to see that not all of you are walking in this right now. So this is stuff you know. But this is stuff we all need to hear again. Why? Because as I say affectionately, because we're stupid. We're slow to heed the word of God and let it come to bear on our hearts. That's why we need to hear it again. So don't expect me to crack your heads with something you've never heard before. You've heard all of this. First, we need to see that Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us. He loved us. This shows us that first off, love takes the initiative. So tell me, Christian, who loved you first? Who loved who first, rather? I already gave away the answer. Who loved who first? Did you love Jesus first, and then he came and loved you and died for you? Or did Jesus love you first and died for you, and then you loved him? Of course, Jesus loved you first. He loved us. That means that love, true love, biblical love, takes the initiative. It does not sit around and wait for the other person to do something else before it acts. True love does not wait for the other person to get their act together, and then you'll love them. Love says, I'm going to do good for this person, and I'm going to show kindness to them and grace to them, even if they're not doing it for me. Even if they don't do it to me, I'm going to love them. Love is a conscious 
decision to take the initiative for someone, even before they show you love. I'll say it again for the married people here. True love, biblical love, is a conscious decision to do good for someone, even if they're not showing you love right now. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't love him, but he loved us first. That's the, this is to be our mentality if we're going to imitate him in light of that. Our mentality has to be this. I'm going to love you. <laughs> Simple enough. I'm going to love you. I'm going to do good for you. Even if you don't return it back to me. Even if you decide to be cold toward me right now. I'm going to be like my Savior who took action and loved me first. That's real love. That, that, it's not a mere emotion. It's not a tit-for-tat economy. You do this, I'll do it back for you. That's not how it works. It's a conscious decision to take the initiative and do good for another person regardless of how they're acting right now. So married people, I pray that you would take this to heart. I know you're upset with your spouse. I know that there is hurt on all sides of your marriage. But please take the initiative and love them. I can honestly say, for God's sake, love them as beloved children. Settle in your own heart that you're going to honor God no matter how they treat you. The Lord Jesus tells us to love our enemies, and that's exactly what he did to us. And in doing so, he made us into his friends. And I bring that up because I'm sure that at times you feel like your spouse is your enemy. But please love them anyway. Because Jesus loved his enemies. Second, we see that Christ gave himself up for us. He gave himself. That's a beautiful phrase. We love that as Christians, right? You can put that on a coffee mug. He gave himself up for me. We like that. Gorgeous phrase. But this is loaded with cost, if you think about it, for just a second. He gave himself up. It was a sacrifice. The rest of the, the, rest of the verse informs you of that. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. To give himself up means he laid down his life. He gave up all that he was for our benefit. He gave his very life to secure our redemption. As every fiber of his human nature screamed out for him to spare himself the pain and spare himself the cost of such a sacrifice, as every part of his humanity told him to flee from the work and flee from the pain, he gave himself he offered himself on an altar, as it were. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to love, we are going to have to let go of our selfishness. I say it in every wedding that I do. You're going to have to stop being selfish. Christ did what he knew was necessary to display his love to us, and there was no selfishness in him. There is no selfishness in giving up yourself. He knew that it would cost him everything, but he did it anyway because he loved us. So if you're going to imitate this, you're going to have to give up being selfish. You're going to have to make a decision to spend time with your spouse. I'm going to say that again for the people in the back. If you're going to do this, you're going to have to make a decision to spend time with your spouse. Even when you don't want to. You're going to have to take the time to spend time with your children and with your family. 
You're going to have to make a decision to actually engage one another with the Word of God and have difficult conversations if you're going to love them. And I don't mean beating one, ahead, one another over the head with a King James Bible. I'm not talking about using the Word that way, but actually encouraging one another in the Word. You're going to have to make time for them. You have to die to yourself. You're going to have to make an active decision to lay down your own desires and give them up so that you might be of service to another. To imitate this, you're going to have to constantly ask yourself, what would be best for them? How might I serve them? And then you do that. Even if it's inconvenient, you do it. God save us from a culture that says if it's inconvenient, it's not worth it. It's not easy to love people. You will be inconvenienced. You don't get to love people on your schedule. You have to ask yourself, how can I actively show this person that I love them? Not passively. How might I actively show them? Because the crucifixion of Christ was an active, he willingly laid himself down. To love like Jesus means that you're going to have to die every day. For to imitate him and love like him, then our lives will become lives of offering and sacrifice. And if I could quote a great preacher better than me, Brian Chapel, there is no life of love without a decree of giving and dying. There is no life of love without a degree of giving and dying. And lastly, we see that the sacrifice and love of Christ was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This tells us about the sufficiency and efficaciousness of Christ's sacrifice to save us, that it was effective, right? It was a sweet-smelling aroma in the nostrils of God. He accepted the sacrifice of Christ. And there's a whole sermon in that to talk about how effective the crucifixion of Christ was to secure our redemption. But for us this evening, I want you to see that loving like Christ pleases God. It pleases him. Now listen, you can't atone for another person's sins, right? That's foolishness. You can't do that. But in loving like Christ, you do offer up a sacrifice of sorts to God. You offer a sacrifice of obedience. You offer a sacrifice of praise to God when you strive to imitate His Son. And God is pleased with it. It is a sweet-smelling fragrance to God when we imitate His Son. This means that you can actually please God and bring Him glory similar to the glory that Christ brought him when you lay down yourself for others and live selflessly toward them. So if you want to glorify God and please him, then love like Christ. The sacrifice is different, but the aroma is the same to God, pleasing to him. Now I have three quick thoughts from this text I'd like to share with you. The first is this. Our meditation on the gospel. Remember we rehearsed all that at the beginning. How has God loved you, dearly beloved children? Our meditation on the gospel. Our meditation on the love of God. Our meditation on the fact that we are beloved children must lead to imitation. Meditation must lead to imitation. By the way, I'm stealing this from Charles Spurgeon, so you know it's good. It's not enough for us to just understand these things and have our feel-goods tickled by them. Right? It's not enough for that. 
God's love for us is something beautiful and, and comforting for us to contemplate. I'm not trying to take away from that. But that it cannot be where our meditation terminates. All of our thinking about these gospel truths are meant to lead us to imitation. That's why Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God. If you're meditating on this truth, doesn't lead you to imitate, then it's not hit your heart. To paraphrase Spurgeon, once you've sat down at the feast of gospel truth, you have to rise up from the meal and use your replenished strength to go and imitate God. The second thing, as I said earlier, if we are to imitate and love like Jesus, then our lives will be lives of offering and sacrifice. To quote Mr. Chapel again, there is no fragrance from the altar that does not require giving an offering or something dying. So therefore, there is no life of love without a degree of giving and dying on our part. That's terrifying. That seems scary, right? It's okay. You can say it. That does not sound fun. That sounds scary. But in reality, this should actually give you some comfort. This should comfort us because it reminds us that what God calls us to do can and will be painful. How is that comforting, right? It hurts, and it's really hard to forgive and love like Paul's telling us. Right? It's really hard. It's difficult. And too often, people think that it shouldn't be hard to live a Christian life, right? But again, Paul tells us here to love like Jesus involves giving and dying. If there were no pain, it wouldn't be described as a sacrifice. It wasn't easy for our Lord in his humanity, in his human nature. He's human just like we are. It was not easy for him to love like this either. Think about this for a second. Look at, the, at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and tell me if loving us was easy for him. Where his sweat was his great drops of blood. He's in anguish in prayer in that garden, in fear, pleading with God, but ultimately submitting himself to death so that he would glorify God and save us. In his humanity, it was not easy for him. So I want to encourage you with this. Don't be surprised when it's hard to love and forgive. Don't be surprised, but it should encourage us to do it anyway when we know ahead of time this was never meant to be easy. That should encourage you. It was never meant to be easy. Imitating Christ rarely is easy, but we do it for his glory because we are beloved children. And then lastly, I promise this is short. As you strive to imitate the Lord Jesus, I really want to encourage you here. There are going to be times where you're going to say, I can't do it because it's too hard. If you've been a Christian very long, you know what I'm talking about. I can't forgive them. I can't love this person. It's too hard. Listen to me for a second. Paul was not lying to you in these verses. He wasn't lying to you. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says you are a child of God. You've been transformed from the inside out. You're not who you once were. You're not a worldling anymore. You're not like the world. You are changed. You're not the same. You are objectively a child of God. And Paul says in Romans 5, 5, that God's love has been poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit. This is the reality for you. You are a member of the family of God. You do objectively have the love of God in your heart. You are one of his children. You do bear the family resemblance as an adopted child. All that is to say, you can love more than you think you can. 
because of what God has already done in you. You can love more than you think you can. He has expanded your capacity to love when he made you his child, and that should encourage you to imitate your father. He's enabled you. So when you think you can't, you can. (laughs) By God's grace, even when you think you can't. And this is because of what God has made you. So as beloved children, imitate your father. I'll let Jesus have the last word on this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word given to us. Thank you for this great reminder of what we objectively are. We are your children. God, help us to stand in awe of that, that we might imitate you, that we might love you more, that we might have more gratitude in our hearts. God, who else would we rather imitate? God, I pray that the cross of Christ would be ever in our mind that we would strive to imitate, that our hearts would be so drawn to him, our affections would be so stoked towards him that they would turn into a raging fire that that we might imitate. God, help us. Please bless the marriages in this church. God, let the husbands not be selfish. Let the wives not be selfish. Let there be genuine forgiveness. Let there be genuine repentance. I pray you chastise your people and discipline them until they repent. We know you do it because you love us. God, teach us what it is to love. Teach us that it's not just about theology and reverent worship and sound doctrine, but it must end in love or it's worthless. Help us, God. And we thank you for what you've done for us in Christ, and that even when we're faithless, you're faithful. We pray this in his name. Amen.